Welcome to another episode of Artistry, where art meets industry. We are your hosts, Rochelle Etienne Robinson and Stan Substantial Robinson. Welcome back. Uh, today, our guest is none other than Kokai. Peace, peace, peace. Yes, Kokai, thank you for being here. Oh, thank um, you for having me. Let me introduce this gentleman. So this is who we're speaking to today is Grammy nominated artist, producer, educator and CEO slash creative director of Let's Talk More Walk. Mm-hmm. He is a D.C. native, born and bred. Speaking of D.C., so what part of D.C. are we talking about? Are we talking about northeast, southeast, southwest, northwest. I love to call it southwest on the southeast side. So if you if you look at the map, there's a little sliver of southwest across the river. So east of the river, right. there's, you know, it's northeast and southeast. But on top or right across by Bowling Air Force Base. And um, if you're on that side of the highway, one side of MLK is southwest. And then the other side of uh, it becomes uh, South Capitol Street is southeast. So I lived on the southwest side. Uh, right off of South Capitol Street on a little street called Elmira at the top of the hill between MLK and South Cap. And that um, whole area was Southwest. Um, But, you know, on the Southeast side. Right. (laughs) Now you, being from D.C., you've seen firsthand um, the effects of gentrification. So tell us, um, walk us through what D.C. was like, you know, being a child of the 70s and 80s, what was it like living um, in D.C.? Other than White Mikey, and that was his real nickname, White <laughs> Mikey. Other than White Mikey, right. um, I could go months at a time without seeing any white people, mm. right? You might see some some uh, people of Asian descent, um, whether Korean or Chinese or uh, rarely Japanese, just Korean or, or Chinese. Chinese. Yeah. I had to carry out of the corner store, right? Mm-hmm. I used to pick up cools at the at the corner store for my father back in the day when they didn't ask you for no ID. They'd just be like, go down the street, give me some cools, come back home. And, you know, right. cool cools and some cooking oil. Yeah. <laughs> cools and some Crisco. <laughs> like, come back right. up the hill. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, you know, Chocolate City, Chocolate City, Choc, Choc, Chocolate City. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Marybury, you know, Marybury. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you know, award eight aficionado is what I call myself. Um, and, and that was that it was, it was, but it was very, I tell people to this, to this day, um, uh, that people in Washington, DC and, and I will just say the surrounding areas, I would definitely say people in DC and those, you know, PG, some parts of MoCo, but definitely PG people know about politics. And you could take it from street level hustler to White House, you know, intern. Everybody know about politics. Like I knew about senators creeping around with pages early on because my people would be like, oh, yeah, I seen young and slipping over that. You know, that's Mm -hmm. that's how they were wrote. So we knew about politics from council seats to ANCs to mayor, mayoral politics to senators and, you know, things of that nature, congressmen. And the little things that went on uh, in in that in D.C. metropolitan area, you know, you you always knew as somebody from Washington D.C. don't get arrested in the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Like that was a move. Like, oh, you going to V.A. Don't be stupid in V.A. and don't get locked up in the Commonwealth. It's the right. Commonwealth, and we kind of knew what the Commonwealth meant. 
Right. You know, you know what them laws meant. You know, right. that's a tobacco state. That's a Confederate jail. That's a right. get locked up forever. Like you don't want the feds to hit you out there. Don't get caught up in Maryland. PG cops will beat you up. Like it was all kinds yeah. of things that you already yeah. knew. Um, and so there was an awareness. Uh, I think there still is to some extent. You know, mm-hmm. an awareness of of these different realities of what it is growing up in 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 Washington D.C. It's a it's there are some, there's several paradigms uh, that exist here to be such a small city with a multitude of police forces. Also, if you, if you think about it, you got mm-hmm. regular MPD, you got Capitol Hill police, mm-hmm. you got Secret Service, you got mm-hmm. uh, uh, Housing Authority police, you got you know Park police. I mean, mm-hmm. th- you know that's I'm I'm named six police departments in one small city, right. forty right. square miles. Right. You know what I mean? It, from 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 the tip of northeast to the tip of southeast, you talking about police everywhere. A police literally within this small space, you have these different sorts of uh, governmental entities that uh, create some sort of Venn diagram of a police state within this small space, uh, and then being able to navigate through that during one of the roughest times in DC when we were the murder cap in the crack area, you know. Absolutely. The drug capital, uh, you know, you, we had king pens and queen pens and all kinds of pens out here, and you know, and you start looking at that. And, and when you look at that time um, and see the city, how the city has changed, you know, 14th Street was never a problem for me. I'm scared of 14th Street now, like sure. Mm. Because, you know, because quite frankly, white women are dangerous. Like I'm just telling you straight mm. up and I don't mean that as a joke. I'm telling you straight, mm. like it, it's times where people forget, like this is Chocolate City. I'm not, I don't forget, Right. you know, but you know, I, I never feared walking around the city, I, I made a choice to raise my kids in the city for the very same reason. I didn't want them, A, to be scared of their own people, and B, be scared of anybody else. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and coming from a, a person, and, and, and you know, you've traveled enough um, to know that when you see, when you visit different states and you interact with different people, their understanding of relationships between black folks and white folks is very different. Because they don't feel like they're not the majority. Right. Right. right Whereas right. in this space, in this area, if you anywhere from this area, with a you, if you're from the area, right. <laughs> you, you right. understand that there's more of us than it is more of them. So you grow up with a different mindset. You grow up with a mindset like, oh, nah, I ain't scared of y'all. Like, I ain't scared of the feds. I ain't scared of white people. Like, what am I supposed to look down because you're walking down the street? Mm. That's different from somebody growing up in Denver. Right. Right. You know, where in the population, they don't, you know, somebody growing up in Oklahoma, somebody growing up in, you know, in a in a small rural space or even in a city where the majority of the city is is don't look like you. Right. right. So when you grow up that way, you I, you know, I got a whole different it ain't even a chip on my shoulder. It's a whole different foundation. Sure. I think for some people who maybe aren't familiar with the D.C. Uh, music scene, right? They may not be aware of those dynamics. So I'm curious to know how this scene has kind of informed like you as an artist, right? Like how has it um, influenced your process? I mean, D.C. for a lot of folks who are listening who don't know is known as a live music city. The way like New Orleans has their live music, D.C. has that that same reputation of being a live music city. So how has that informed you as a musician, both the politics 
uh, the struggles and and all of these things. Right. How do you encompass that? Well, D.C. has a deep historical cultural identity. That's, you know, like you said, you mentioned it. Similar to Second Line and Zydeco, you don't have many places that have their own indigenous music. Mm-hmm. D.C. has its own indigenous music form, go-go music, which mm-hmm. is a live music situation. It presents live. Similar to jazz, similar to rock, similar to a lot of different music forms outside of electronic music. So if we just take away all the electronic music that was founded and worked on in D.C. and just stuck with live bands, you're talking about R&B, jazz, rock, mm-hmm. punk, punk in particular, um, and go-go. These right. things all, you know, come out of band culture. So we have band culture from the days of Duke Ellington, um, Marvin Gaye, uh, right. and so forth. And, you know, even, you know, uh, 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 Wes Felton's dad, um, mm-hmm. you know, the the deep legacy of Roberta Flack, Donnie Hathaway. I mean, we could just talk about the deep historical um, uh, individuals within our community that started out as music creators, live mm-hmm. music makers, right? Um, and with the foundation and, and, and establishment of go-go music, then you just create a whole legacy of live music presentations. So bands to me were not foreign. Playing mm-hmm. an instrument was not a foreign thing. Um, being in a situation in which you interacted with bands was not a foreign thing. And I think that kind of gives you a leg up when you move in a different spaces that you understand how to interact with a band. You going in front of a band and rocking is way different from somebody who never dealt with a band before and doesn't understand that energy. I mean, it even affects your performance. Mm -hmm. So we come from, you know, hip hop culture, uh, gospel culture, Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, African culture period when we talk about call and response patterns. And when we get into the etymology, you know, of, of music and 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 the, and the history of how music creation happens, we talk about jazz, we talk about any of these things that require innovation, uh, improvisation, and call and response. Right? Mm-hmm. Those things exist firmly within our our culture, our culture, our musical uh, uh, landscape as residents of this area. Because you used to go on music, you used to syncopation. Right. Mm-hmm. You used to call and response. Where, 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 where are you from? Southeast, mm-hmm. Northeast, Maryland, where you at? Right here. You know, pick pick any of those old go-go songs. They telling you to say something back to them. So you right. get the call and response of shouts and hollers that you used to get back when, when we were not uh, uh, able to govern ourselves um, and were owned by other people. We had those cadences and things that would get us through the workday. And so that translates, that trickles down throughout that whole line into go-go music. And so you have that call and response. You have syncopated African rhythms and you have African instruments. So you have congos, you have uh, timbales, you have a heavy reliance on, on, on the drum to relate the, the, the information similar to African, you know, the African diaspora, the drum is key. Um, and you have that syncopation within that uh, along with the call and response. And then you have the innovation where we take something out of nothing. So you get bands like Junkyard Band that actually literally had junk to mm-hmm. start playing on, right? right. So it's it, you know it's purely African in the way that it's established um, mm-hmm. and moved on, and so that has informed uh, me, especially when you, so when you talk about innovation, you talk about punk rock, 
which, you know, is normally attributed to other places. You know, I mean, Los Angeles definitely had a heavy punk scene, but DC did too. And one of the most revered bands out of DC, Bad Brains, mm-hmm. influenced so many punk rock bands. You know, they even talk about it in the in the Beastie Boys documentary. You know, um, Foo Fighters talks about it. You know, Dave Grohl being from this area. Dave Grohl talks about Go-Go and punk. Mm-hmm. From DC, he he Dave Grohl throws Big Tony a party every year uh, to celebrate his birthday because he understands that the the formation of uh, uh, punk rock was largely fueled and helped by go-go music because those would they would only let those two play in the same space. So go-go mm-hmm. bands were already playing, and they right. wouldn't let the punk kids play nowhere else except with a go-go band. Wow. Same thing happened with hip hop. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's you have this intertwining of all these things and so yeah growing up here you you already understand this this kind of culture and then the other piece is we a small city with a big attitude mm-hmm. we a small area with a big attitude real talk right. like you if you i mean you talk about maryland people talk about maryland, that i mean i think this is the differentiation between baltimore and pg and baltimore and moco it's still maryland but because you feel so close to the city and involved in this small city, but we got, but we got them hands though. Like that's, <laughs> I think that's really <laughs> the <laughs> DC perspective, the DC Maryland Virginia perspective, you know, is yeah, yeah, we might be small young, but come get these hands. You can get them. Right. You know, we don't care. We don't care who you are. We not going to clap. We not going to be your friend. We boo you to your face. You mm-hmm. know, I don't care who you are. I don't care how many millions of records you sold. Entertain yeah. me, right? And I mean, and, you know, and for those who don't know, also, like historically, um, this area has been um, extremely influential in urban music in particular, in terms of being able to kind of predict the the next big wave. Right. right. Like certain music would come out and it, and labels would know, like, all right, if it's performing well in D.C., it's probably going to do well in this market nationally. Right. Like it's going to do uh, well right. in the national market. So right. and that. That's something I learned early on in the uh, the record industry um, that I didn't know. Like I, I just really didn't know how influential we were. You know? Nah, we're we're one of the top ten buyers markets, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a good thing and a bad thing for DC is that it's just like any other. So you take it. I look at DC like I look at other countries. You know, you got a gross mm-hmm. national product and mm-hmm. you got a gross national debt when you talk mm-hmm. about countries. So if you create a whole bunch of stuff you got product that you sell to other people and that influences your economy, right? And mm-hmm. that influences your standing as a country globally. Right. If you buy a lot of stuff, but you're not creating a lot of stuff, that means you you have more money going out than you actually have coming into your country. Um, and yeah. so it puts you lower on the tiers of countries because your gross national product ratio to your gross national debt is 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 off kilter and so mm-hmm. dc though we are a number one buyer's market we ain't producing as much outside and don't have the infrastructure of industry as far mm-hmm. as music is concerned to cause that same industry to come here and make an established space like put record labels on 15 or on k street Right. So that you can have this burgeoning music economy. We buy a lot of music, but our exported music ends up somewhere else. L.A., Atlanta, mm-hmm. New York, sure. et cetera. Sure. A couple of years ago, um, you had presented a TEDx Washington, D.C. talk where you discussed collaboration and the creative economy. 
How important is, would you say, is the business side of the performing arts? Um, I think my perspective has always been this. If you learn the music business, you'll stay in love with music. And I think that goes, I think that crosses any creative, any creative thing, right? If you love film, if you understand the business of film, but you love making movies, right? Mm -hmm. You'll continue to make movies once you understand the business. Because the business of it, it's like, it's like um, having a dream and then having that dream become reality, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people that I know and probably you know have quit doing music because the business wore them down. Absolutely. They put 100% of their faith and love and hope in the fact that this music was going to feed them and feed their kids and pay for their illustrious lifestyles and make sure that they was doing all this great stuff, you know, that they would never have any worries. And when the money didn't come in, then they not only hated the business, they hated the music that they was doing because they felt like they was wasting their time. Mm. Um, But I feel like I love music. I've loved music since I was a kid and sitting at my daddy's feet listening to records, you know, watching my sister's hum songs in the hallway. I'm always going to love music. I may not always like the music business, but because I understand it, it gives me a different perspective. It's not personal for me, like a lot of times. I mean, it ain't personal until you say, Coke, I hate you. Like, that's, <laughs> you know, that's when it's personal. Right. But it's, but it's not personal if you say, I don't like your music. Right. It's not personal if you say, hey, that's not just that's not my wave. It's not personal. You know, you know, when people do credit stuff to try to block you from something. But if you bought your business, they can't really block you. Not right. really. Right. You know, and I and I so that's how I look at it. I think once you understand the business of music um, and the intricacies of each. Uh, so like your specialty when I when I talk to you, saying your specialty is understanding your market understanding mm-hmm. how to promote to your market, understanding how to utilize social networks and, and, and social interactions and, and touch points and, 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 and action items to move your audience to do exactly what they're supposed to do. That's when I look at you, I, I know somebody who has understood the business. When I look at you both, y'all understand the business to a space where you can say, okay, here's my audience and I need to move my audience to go do X and you get your audience to go do X, right? Mm-hmm. You understand that part about the business. So you're not confused if somebody buys, you know, 15 things over here and then doesn't invest over here because you've already taken time to look at the data to mm-hmm. figure out, you know, your, what your audience is, to understand the scope of the business. Absolutely. So when you make your records, you're not tripping. Right. You're like, I'm a promote and give people an action item to go do this. If they don't go do this, that must not resonate with them. But it'll resonate with these people over here because I have the you know, the quantifiable data that shows me that this type of record is going to move these people. This type right. of record is going to move these people. Now, you're not doing things to be calculated, but you mm-hmm. calculate that in the way that you promote the music. Right. You know, you're not creating for the fans. You're creating for yourself, but you understand the data behind how your fans operate and you understand the mindset of your fan and you understand the mindset of the business so much so that you're able to effectively incorporate your music into that structure. Right. And and you're creating like realistic expectations based off of, you know, what your experiences have been, right? Um, like uh and being able to measure actual growth or or, you know, or the opposite. And so, you know, go so you're not going in completely blind, which right. creates a lot of the, you know, um uh, like a lot of these jaded uh some of our peers, right? And some yeah. other folks in the industry who are very jaded because oftentimes right. they have a, 
unrealistic expectation of how their stuff is going to perform based on either their investment, the lack thereof, um, or like their own ego. There's a lot of different things that kind of factor into it. And so, yeah, nah, I feel you. You, you got to know exactly who you are. You got to know exactly. I'm not going to lie to myself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I right. think that's I think that's super key in understanding this music business is you got to stop. Don't lie to your man. You better quit. Right. <laughs> if you want to, if right. you want to be about this life, and you want to be about making this music, you better quit lying to you. Sure, you know. I think I'm. I definitely think I'm dope. Do I know that I'm dope? Absolutely. Do I know mm-hmm. I can write a great song? Absolutely. Absolutely. Am I YBN Corday? Nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I'm not. I'm just not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not six nine. I'm mm-hmm. not. You know. I'm not none of these youngins out here. I'm not Doja Cat. I'm not. Right. I'm not Rico Nasty. I'm not them. And I'm not envious. Right, right. I'm not mad and I'm not sitting I'm not sitting back listening to their song going, ah, I could have did that better. It's like right, what about right. man, they did them. Mm-hmm. They did them. I do me. Our audiences may or may not be the same. If mm-hmm. if and am I willing or do I want to be in that lane? If that's right. the lane that I want to be in, then I right. need to change up my whole steeds. So all right. this lyrical miracle that you're doing. You might mm-hmm. want to pull that back and go get a little simple. Right. If you if you're not willing to, and this and I think that goes along with understanding the business. Mm-hmm. Once you understand the business, if you are willing, that's that's the thing that the business makes you do. That's when you get out of the love affair of just loving music, right? Because I love mm-hmm. music. And then you get into the love affair, loving business. It's because the business is gonna say, okay. They making $6.9 million. They getting 450 billion streams, but mm-hmm. they talking about this. You going to talk right. about that? Right. Now, if you ain't going to talk about it, stop complaining about their streams and stop complaining about their money because you don't want to do that. You don't want to get butt naked on the, on the track. You know what I mean? You ain't mm-hmm. cussing people out. You ain't shooting people in your music. You ain't talking about all the ignorant shit that they talking about. Like, right. if you're not willing to do that, shutty uppy. <laughs> right right yeah. and you know for those who have not seen you I mean definitely look him up I mean he's definitely Kokai is definitely one to um, one to watch one to see and see again and again and again because I oh, think with your because of your range I mean you go from hip hop to jazz to funk to punk to rock to soul R&B you name it you un- all under one roof all under one you know skull cat right, <laughs> right. And, and sometimes to my detriment I mean and I keep that a buck too you know mm. and I was going to say it it what's awesome about watching you do that too is it never feels like a reach right like it just it feels effortless right. um you know and so and I think I mean, we find artists that kind of experiment with different genres, um, you know, making genre bending music, so to speak. Um, And I mean, and a lot of times, you know, there are a few folks out here who do a great job of doing it. Um, And while a lot of times it comes across as forced. um, But when I listen to you, like that is never that is. Yeah, it's effortless. It never feels like a forced thing. And I and I know that's not something that happened overnight. Um, you know, uh, you know what I mean? Like, and I think it's important maybe to, to kind of talk about that a bit, right? Like right. the, the whole, your, your 10,000 hour journey, so to speak, like, um, you know, like what, what gave you the, the freedom, right? And what made you feel free enough to experiment with all these things, especially being someone 
who's from the area, but even though we're from the area and we know the history of this area in the in the industry, we know that like a good amount, there's a lot of pockets uh, of friends in, in area, uh, like different parts of the area where you can't go in there doing this type of thing right. and get accepted. So, so, so yeah, if you could talk about that a little bit, just like what that process was like for you to get to that point. For sure. It's, it's, I think the, the beginning of the process started with accepting who I am as, as me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's key to understanding who you are as an artist. Once you understand who you are as an artist, like I had a good mentor, Steve Coleman, right. And Steve would say, you know, you got to understand when to say no, making, once you understand what you're not going to do, mm-hmm. it makes it really easy to answer all the questions. You know, so if somebody telling you go over here and get naked, no. You know, <laughs> somebody tell you go over here and do this, no. Like because you know who you are is it starts with, you know, making that time. So the, at the beginning of the journey, the beginning of the ten thousand hours, the first hours are really defining who you are as an artist. Like who am I? Mm. What am I willing to do? What am I not gonna do? You right. know, what roads am I going down and, and do I care about what people think? Right. Um, and I think some artists get caught up on, on that part. They have established themselves as this type of artist for so many years. And so they're afraid that once they segue away from that, they just going to leave their fans. And man, your fans, if, if, if you've been honest with your folks, mm-hmm. your folks are going to understand that this is part of the journey. Right. They're not going to be confused. Because they've been with you since day one. And when they seen a little peak of it, they was like, hold up. You know, mm-hmm. what's that? And you like, well, I, I do this too. And they like, oh, well, well, show me some more. And you like, okay, here you go. Right. You know, and even, you know, the people that's going to rock with you, going to rock with you for life, or they just going to leave. Uh, and you can't be afraid of that. And I think that's when you first start talking about the first thousand hours, that first thousand hours is spent on establishing, you know, the rapport between, it's just like dating. Mm-hmm. As you know, that first thousand hours, you gotta be like, hey, what's good? You know, you wanna go to movies, you know, you polite and you talk to people in a way that's different, you know, and you you trying to make sure that they understand who you are and you have deep conversations about, you know, mm-hmm. how you gonna do this and how you raise folks and, you know, mm-hmm. what would our life look like? Like you, you get into those things that, you know, what was your life like before you met me? So you they understand the history, you know. You you put up these, you start understanding one another in that in that aspect, mm. and then as you grow in your relationship, you reveal more and more to that person, and you also understand what that person they're willing to go challenge themselves just like you challenge them. You know what I mean? You right. start to challenge. You know, as long as y'all been married, when y'all first started dating, it don't look like it look now. Right. 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 And and when you got to a certain point in your relationship, you knew you could see in the other person where you know they want to go, but sometimes they don't have the courage to go. And so what you start doing with them is you start not only for yourself, you start getting better, you up your level, but you look at them and be like, yo, come on, I know you can go do this. You want to do this? Because the, the secrets start coming out. The secrets of, I don't want to go to work every day and work for somebody else. If I could earn this much money and I could do this, this, and this, I don't want to go work for them. And that other person is either going to be like, go to work, or mm-hmm. they're going to be like, all right, let's get this dream in. But now you know, if you want to get this dream in, you can't be loafing. 
Right. Right. You're not going to loaf here, 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 and here. Like you need to tighten up this. You need to tighten up that. And if they and if they have a journey, and and all you do is you work together to push one another to become greater, to be your best selves. Right. And the longer you in a relationship with somebody in love with somebody, you want to make sure that they are happy. Right. right? Even if that's with you or without you, honestly, mm. you know, their happiness is more than just being with you. Their right. happiness is being okay with them. Absolutely. You know? And so I think as you grow as an artist, that's the other piece. It's like that happiness ain't just with me. You know, I, I want you to be happy with me, but I got to be happy with me. Mm. You know, I got to go out here and create and and being realistic. Like you said, once again, comes back to that realistic thing. So after these 10,000 hours, I'm like, okay, I love making hip hop music, but I might go ahead and make this punk record and I might go ahead and make these instrumentals and I Mm -hmm. might go over here and play with my nose. I don't know. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I'm going over there. I don't care. Like, I don't. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if you want to roll with me, roll with me. And if you don't, mm mm-hmm. I can't, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna be mad that you left. Right. I'm just gonna go express myself. And those who who are, who love me will come with me. You know, speaking of um, the early days in your career, you have performed in over 42 countries. Do you remember your first time and what was the first place you traveled to outside of the U.S.? San Juan, your- France. And what was your experience like? <laughs> like, I know that Joe from the back. Of, listen, man. Um, so I grew up, I was born at Cape Fritz Hospital, which is Greater Southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was five, my dad worked for the Army. So it was, you know, it's, it's five of us as far as my siblings, seven people in total, right? Five kids, two parents, you know, mm-hmm. parents. We all went to Germany when I was five. Uh, my little sister was two. We went to Germany and we lived, I lived in Mannheim for five years till I was 10. Um, and then we came back to DC. Um, and so I knew about other countries. I knew other um, cultures, but I wasn't, you know, five to 10, you ain't getting the whole picture. Right. So yeah. I knew that I was, I felt different when I came back. I didn't even know how to navigate when I came back. I was like, what is this? What is this aggression that these blacks have? Like, <laughs> I don't understand this playground situation. This is what I wasn't going through. I wasn't going through this, this other school in this other space. <laughs> what are you doing? Why, why are you so angry about me being from the top of the hill and you from the bottom? What are we doing here? <laughs> because I was living in utopia, like a little right. slight racist utopia, but utopia nonetheless. Right. All the brown kids and all the other foreign kids play with each other, but not so much when you're over at Joseph Beheimer's house. Like <laughs> Joe Beheimer was my neighborhood, my neighbor downstairs. Joe Beheimer, mama and them was cool, but his brother was a slack, so old smack racist. Like, oh, wow. hey, Joe was cool, but his brother was straight Ku Klux. Um, <laughs> Um, so moving back, I felt different. My first, and my, you know, honestly, my journey is, look, when you talk about, uh, faith and belief and God and all these interactions, yo, son, I can't even front. That's why I tell people today, I cannot be mad at the journey I've had. I can't because mm-hmm. I literally went from dropping out of college mm-hmm. to working at, um, National Diamond for the Humanities. I was Lynn Cheney, Dick Cheney's wife's personal driver. 
Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in high school, I had a I had a top secret clearance because I worked for the Army Research Institute um, in the psychology department designing maps for the ASVAB as a high school student. So I was making money doing that in high school. I had top secret clearance when I was 17, 18, 19. Um, going into University of Maryland to do electrical engineering. But I would work at the Army Research Institute in the summers. When I got to the, after I dropped out because I was having some serious issues, depression, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. um, and I got to the National Endowment for the Humanities, I was pushing mail and working for the library from time to time. The mm-hmm. driver in the library got sick. They needed somebody who had top secret clearance to drive the chairman, who was Lynn Cheney at that time. Mm-hmm. So this, look at the serendipity. Look how God be making a boop, boop, boop. Mm-hmm. My high school rap partner was my homie from the fifth grade. We grew up with each other. He lived on Galveston. I lived on Elmira. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen him since he graduated high school. So we went to elementary school together. He ended up going to St. Thomas More for middle school. I went to Assumption. And then I ended, we both ended up Archbishop Carroll. We had a mutual friend named Tuji, how I read it, God bless the dead. Um, and Tuji, he was Kung Fu Terrence um, from Galveston because he knew all the Kung Fu. I seen him do a karate move, Kung Fu Terrence or karate Terrence or whatever. Um, we run into each other because I'm working for the National Endowment for Humanities with the library because I'm dropping off some books at the Library of Congress. I look into a room, like literally walking down the hall. I look into this room and I'm like, Terrence? Mm-hmm. I ain't seen you since high school, bro. You went through mm-hmm. a whole four smack years of college. I ain't seen you. I run into you in the library. You work at the Library of Congress. I happen to be delivering books at the library. Mm-hmm. That don't happen every day. He right. see me, he like, yo, man, you still rap? I wasn't rapping at the time when we was partners. I was in his beatbox. He was the MC. I wasn't even rhyming. I didn't even want to rhyme. I just wanted to make music for people and write rhymes for people. I didn't think I could rhyme. I didn't think I could do none of that. I end up, he says, man, come to the cypher. I was like, yeah, I started rapping. He was like, you rapping? I'm like, yeah, I'm rapping. He was like, man, come to the cyphers. I go to Freestyle Union, literally not even a year later, bro. I'm in New York making a record with Steve Coleman because a producer named Ezra Greer was was there at one of the ciphers and was like, man, I want to take you out of New York, make a record. And I was like, nah, right. <laughs> you well. Right. So end up doing all that stuff. My first, you know, we go make the record. On that record is Black Thought from the Roots. Didn't even know. We met him, uh, met Black Thought, uh, Amir at the same time. And they're, cause their manager, Rich Nichols, was talking to Steve about how to manage the Roots. And that's why the Roots end up going to London because Steve told him, treat your band like a jazz band, mm-hmm. have them go to another country, establish their thing. He said, once they build a fan base, they'll tour forever. Mm. And the rest is Look at the Roots, right. Mm-hmm. Um, then we leave, that record, we leave that recording session in New York off of uh, Dittmas, uh, over in, um, off of uh, Ocean Parkway, Brooklyn. So mm-hmm. we leave that studio come home, they call me and say, you got a passport. Last time I had a passport, I was five years old. Right. So I go to the, my man who happened to be at the Cyphers. I go, we go to the state that we go to the state department, the passport office. My man who was at the Cyphers is in the window. We in line. I look up, he in the window. 
He like, what y'all doing here? I was like filling out this passport jump. He said, man, step out of line, come in for a second. Gave me the little south side holler. Mm-mm. Next thing you know, we had our passports in like a couple of hours. Wow. wow. Off the goofy, right? <laughs> First trip. Next thing you know, we on a plane. We get to Europe. I'm on a double-decker tour bus. Huh? <laughs> Staying in five-star hotels. What? Right. I mean, granted, with a, with my homie, who's my roommate. That's mm-hmm. who I'm with the whole tour. But we with Ravi Coltrane, John Coltrane's son, Steve Coleman, uh, um, Gene Lake, Oliver Lake's son, Ralph Alessi, uh, super super trumpet player, Michael Wimberly, Dr. Moe, who's uh, uh, Karen Musabale, who's a well-known African per- percussionist who was living in Holland. Um, Brad, Reggie Washington, incredible bass player. Um, I only, excuse me, I don't remember if David Gilmore was on that. And Andy Mill, piano player. This is my first time out the country. Wow. And we with two other MCs from Philly. Uh, one of them was Black Thought's best friend, uh, uh, Sean, um, mm-hmm. who went by Air Smooth. I crack a beer with Air Smooth. Air yeah. Smooth and Andre the Great one, which they were called Divine Beings at the time. Mm-hmm. They were the other two MCs in this in this experiment that we were on. That's my first joint. And we pull up after we get off the plane in, in Paris and drive to this little city outside of Paris called Samois, France. Mm-hmm. And that's our first gig. And I, my whole head is blown wide open. Because wow. there's mad people there. And I'm like, I get to rap on stage for all these people? Right. right now? Like, right now? Right now? <laughs> Bruh, that ain't never. That's I mean, awesome. rapping at home is one thing. Rapping right. in another country. And they don't speak your language. Like, bruh, yeah. I took French in high school so I can get around. But I'm like, oh, y'all bambas ain't going to understand nothing. We said, this about to be, you know, you got the whole goofy look like, this about to be real interesting, Mo. How they going to understand? Right. And they all in. It's a whole wave. That's dope. So, yeah, I can't be mad. You know, and throughout your career, you've been able to, you've worked with some some very talented greats. I mean, you have Ambrose, and I'm I'm gonna pardon me if I mess up his name. Ambrose, Hold on. Akin- let me help you. I'm Thank gonna you. stop you. Thank so you. So you don't do it. Akin Mus Yes. Mm. Jazz trumpeter. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Terry no Lynn Corrington. <laughs> Social science. Whose hat is this? Gold link. Guillermo Brown. I mean, and so many others. What advice do you have for aspiring artists wanting to collaborate with another artist without being coming off as a creep or, you know, or coming off too thirsty. Right. Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, a subtle DM, DM is cool. Right. Not to listen to my joint, bro. Don't, don't hit me with that John. Just stop yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, a subtle DM, like, yo, I'm looking forward. I want, I would like to collaborate on something. Some, this, uh, piano player from out of Prague hit me off the low, low, just was like, Hey, I'm working on this thing. Would you want to be a part? I was like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Even hitting the website, like hit the website and fill out a contact form. Like mm-hmm. I had a young and I'm just random. I'll answer anybody's question. I don't have any problem. A young and hit me the other day. He hit me through Facebook. I don't, my Facebook is really like the last place you should ever try to hit me because I don't pay attention to that junk. Right. Um, I'll go there every now and again, but you know, we a little older, younger, so we don't be really you know, tracing the Facebook line all that well. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I was just like, yo, hit me. And I said, hit me. You know, he, he hit me on Facebook. Then he hit me in a DM. And I said, use the contact form. Email me in the contact form and tell me what you try and find out. And that was it. He just was like, yo, what did I do? I'm from Rhode Island. Um, I don't know what to do about my music and I'm working and da, 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 da. And I just gave him some advice, you know, but even collaborations, it's the same thing. Now, excuse me, if we talk about, you know, music, you know, and me and Stan have had long talks about this. If we talk about for sale, right. right. Even during the COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I got that fee. I'm sorry. Right. I love you. I love you a lot. I love you a lot. Mm-hmm. Grammy nominated, you know, thing mm-hmm. and all that other little accolades and all that time. Yep. Come with a cost. Absolutely. You know I mean? Absolutely. Four million streams, brother, come with a cost. You dig yes, me? Sir. Right. So there's a cost. Um, mm-hmm. Now we can work it out. There's payment plans available. There's all sorts of ways that we can work things out and negotiate and talk about them. Um, and mm-hmm. it depends on who you are, too. You know, there's friends and family discounts, things of that nature. Right. Um, but that's that's the best way is to be willing to pay. And I recently, just as a side, I asked somebody to do an illustration for me and they were like, yo, I'm horrible at pricing. And I said, here go the price. But if this ain't your price, I'm not mad at you. Mm-hmm. Like, let me know. Right. He was like, what's your budget? I was like, currently during COVID, I don't have a budget, but I have a plan. Right. So if this number works for you, I will make sure I get the money up and give you money. Don't start nothing till right. I give you your money. Right. right. You know what I mean? Like, but that's where I'm at. Like, I'm, I keep it a buck. That's the best way I think that you could, without being a bugaboo, is just come with what you come with. Like, just be like, mm-hmm. yo, I know that your time is valuable. You know, keep it honest, as as honest as possible. I think mm-hmm. that's the best way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of the, you know, the current crisis uh, that we're in, obviously a lot of people's income has been um, greatly affected by what's going on. How much of the income you make through music is live performance or having to physically be present versus um, passive income? 75% of the money that I make is from live performance. And I'm working on getting my passive income, seeking the assistance of substantial art and music. Mm-hmm. Um, because I understand that that passive income situation is is a real one, and COVID mm-hmm. has helped me to not just realize. I already realized the pre-COVID, right. but it's showing up driving the point home right now because that passive would still be a lovely situation right now. Sure, right. I still get publishing, which you know every three months I'm seeing a nice little check. Me and Kevin Hart still that's my man, Fifty Grizzle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Hart money be coming in, grocery time, right? Like, you know. <laughs> For those who don't know, uh, Kokai has music in um, Laugh at My Pain by uh, Kevin Hart. So, yeah, I just wanted to make sure they Thank give him a point of reference. But go ahead. You know, so I still get publishing every three months uh, from from a number of different recordings, but mostly Kevin at this moment. <laughs> um, but there's also the relationships that I have um, established through, you know, being good people. And mm-hmm. being about my word and being a professional has off also uh, benefited from stay at home concerts. So Kennedy yeah. Center reached out for a stay at home concert. Um, mm-hmm. Creative Mornings reached out for a stay at home concert. Like it's other entities. If it, you know, it's a, it's an amalgamation of of how you do business. Sure. So, but yeah, mostly seventy five percent of my income comes from live shows and live interactions and tours. Um, right. that's normally how I, I, how I pay my bills. And then, so it's like 
uh, yeah. And so that would that would be from it would be tours with other musicians and myself. Mm-hmm. Then it would be performances with institutions and workshops and stuff with institutions. So, right. you know, some of the some of the relationships that I have with institutions, I was supposed to go to Brazil early at the beginning of this year and do mm-hmm. a bunch of workshops in like Bahia. Right. You know, um, that's still on the table. It's just you know pushed back on the table. You know, right, I had right. concerts that were supposed to go uh, March, April, May, uh, and all of those have been pushed back. It's supposed to pick up in November, but I haven't heard the word yet. Right. Um, gotcha. And so currently, uh, right now, the good unemployment, and I ain't shame, uh, the good unemployment is kicking way in, in which I'm like, hey, go yeah. with the, you know, CARES Act or whatever Trump trying to say as he robs the country some more. Go ahead and slap me my little couple of nickels. Um, and that's new, too, um, because uh, I'm sorry, I was just going to say that's new, too, because for a lot of gig um, workers, you know, they were never eligible for um, unemployment previously. So, yeah. Right. It's the PPP was open. CARES Act is open um, for you if you want to do that. Um, Yeah. But it's also you got to remember with the CARES Act. I mean, just to keep it, I'm going to keep it a solid one. Along with the CARES Act, what happened is Trump instituted privilege to knock out some of the restrictions that were on governmental contracts. Mm -hmm. So normally governmental contracts that had to have reservations for people of color for the disabled and for veterans because of a presidential order, he no longer has to adhere to that. So anybody can go bid on these and they don't have to put any money aside for any specialty groups. Exactly. Right. So while the CARES Act is helping me through, it's also robbing my folks. It's also robbing, you know, those who are disabled and it's robbing vets and it's robbing, uh, you know, small black businesses, um, small minority businesses, which are, you know, women led uh, um, and things of those nature to benefit those uh, other persons in the oligarchy. But we ain't going to get on that. Right. Right. I mean, I told you being from D.C. it put you up on some politics. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. But, you know, in addition to that, you've also um, you were the former governor of the D.C. Grammy chapter. You are a faculty member of the School of Improvisational Music in New York. Um, and most recently, you are a, um, I mean, among artists, you recently released a uh, mixed media portrait on the experience of black masculinity called hubris. Can you um, talk to us a little bit about that? Uh, actually, I was a trustee. I just I just uh, uh, lost my trustee election. I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, so I was trustee at the D.C. chapter, Recording Academy, uh, and uh, co-chair PNG and helped to draft a lot of great proposals and and try to move music culture forward for people of color um, and and genres that were marginalized. Uh, so that's a lot of the work that I did with the Recording Academy. School of Improvisational Music is a school started by Ralph Alessi, uh, the homie. And from time to time, I go in as faculty. I work with uh, One Beat Collective as a mentor in that situation. Um, I travel and work with the State Department as a music emissary that uses utilizes hip hop to uh, work with uh, conflict resolution um, in in certain areas where there there's up is political conflict. Um, 
And so I do all of those things that, you know, that's the work side of the, of the, of the art side. I think that as an artist, you know, you, you have, it's so funny. I heard Dr. Dre uh, with Jimmy Iovine talking about, you know, they had this whole thing about musicians being role models. Right. Um, and how that really isn't the, the role of an artist. Uh, similar to the whole Michael Jordan comment about, you know, Republicans buy Nikes too, or whatever they attribute to him to saying. Um, and I always find it funny when, um, it's not funny, it's just people's perspective on what they feel like their responsibility is as a prominent figure or whatever, right? Let your mama be your role model, don't make me your role model. Right. And I figure like, you know what, um, it's enough people out here that have youngins and young black folks and black fathers and, you know, uh, African culture, African society, the, 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 the diaspora, um, giving them all sorts of influences, right? Um, if I could be a voice counter uh, to those influences, I think I'm gonna go ahead and do that. You know, I think I'll take I'll take that responsibility. Am I a perfect human being? Nah, not at all. You know what I mean? Um, and I ain't afraid to let a cuss word fly every now and again, and you know, and all of that. Um, but I still feel like part of my responsibility to myself, to myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is to go out here and try to be an influence um, for the greater good, period, so. you know? And yeah, I know some Republicans might buy my records as with some Democrats. I hate the two party system anyway, so I don't care what right. you get. You know what I mean? Um, come come get this, come get these bars, but I ain't gonna hold back um, and I'm not gonna relinquish the ownership uh, or the onus of responsibility just because I'm an artist and, you know, because that goes to the, that goes to the, you are artist. You ain't supposed to talk about none political state department told us that my right. first, my first time out on the road with, with the, with the band out with Opus, the, the band I was in, it was like, well, you ain't got to talk about all that political stuff. Y'all just artists. Y'all make music like, but art and, and art period mm-hmm. is normally a commentary on society. Right. So, you already know that I'm an artist. You already know that this art is commentary. It ain't about flying by night and being happy and carefree. It's about a commentary on society. And if we as artists don't talk about society, how do we expect to have change? Like this is the best way for me to express my like or dislike of the current political, social, economic, racial, cultural experience. Like Mm -hmm. what? Yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say, and that's actually a great segue because um, your most recent project, Hubris, um, you actually deal with not only the political, but you talk about black masculinity. um, You talk about um, the prison industrial complex. Can you um, walk us through as far as what inspired you to do this exhibit, this project? The Hubris project started out because I... You know, you hear this word, you hear that, I hear, I heard that word a lot in political commentary. Um, mm-hmm. The hubris of man, you know, they talk about it in business, they talk about it in politics, oh, the sheer hubris of such and such and such. 
And so I just started looking at that word and I was like, wow, that's supposed to be like shunning your, it's supposed to be arrogance. And mm-hmm. it's supposed to be shunning your 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 nose at God. And if you go back and look at the Greek fairy tales, it's about a young kid who is told what to do, with the limitations on himself. Basically, mm-hmm. here these wings, if you fly too close to the sun, they're going to melt. If you fly too close to the sea, you're going, they're going to get wet, you're going to drown. Stay in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, be mediocre is how I, how I interpreted it. So then I started thinking about us as a people and the expectation on us, right? As a people, you know, don't be too loud when you're out in public. Don't celebrate like you celebrate. Stop dancing in the end zone like you dance in the end zone. That's a penalty. Um, Don't be great. Why are you talking about you can jump from the free throw line? What's wrong with you? What you mean you smart? What do you mean you open up your own bit? Like all of these limitations that get put on us as a people, that we supposed to conform, right? As a people. Right. Less of, I mean, as a subsection of that, as black women and men, women get one sort of perspective put on them as black women, you being too fresh. They always try to over-sexualize black women. They try to over-sexualize black girls. Mm-hmm. They take black men and try to put them in a dress. They want to emasculate black men, put them in a dress. When we talk about larger societal situations, I'm not talking about uh, social constructs I'm talking about um, as far as entertainment is concerned, they either want to emasculate or demasculate or criminalize you, right? So we, right. The, the big black burly uh, superhero man that can't have, that can't be arrested by one officer. It takes 50 officers to subdue the black body because we superhuman. And if we lay on the ground with our hands out somehow, uh, we can superhumanly jump up and kill you uh, if you have guns on us, so I have to shoot you first. Like, it's all of these things that happen to us, to the black body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in relation to the idea of being excellent, um, that oftentimes for black people gets equated to whiteness. Um, and if you t- and in white uh, structures, and uh, that blackness gets equated to arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or, or, and, and, and our quietness gets related to anger and our body gets related to fear. Right. right? So it's all these things that correlate. And so I took the idea of hubris and the, and the fairy tale associated to reimagine what it would be like for a black father and son who are locked up in prison, the prison industrial complex by the King president. I mean, by the King, um, mm-hmm. Um, and what that story would look like and what what is Icarus as a young man saying to us as a society and and you know what are we as a society saying to ourselves as black society because I, I can't be concerned about other people um, what are we saying to ourselves when we ask our kids and ourselves to not be excellent and not to drink wow. um, and so that's what I, I went into with hubris and did that through uh, photography through music and through uh, film in, in the film On Dreams, where I interviewed black men, uh, up to and including my brother right here, about what it was to, to, to have a dream, um, to express that dream to other people and be told how to dream um, and, and the interactions between those. Um, and then I went a little further and did a, a small EP called Living While Black, mm-hmm. um, which uh, was basically a portrait of, uh, or, or the impetus behind it was hearing so many stories 
right, of us as a people being murdered. Bro, you don't understand the amount of, uh, I, I try not to, but with, I can't, I could be a violent person. I ain't even gonna lie to you. You know, sometimes these hands want to get exercised. Um, <laughs> but there are certain times where I really wish bodily harm, and I don't want to wish it, but I really be wanting bodily harm to come to these people that kill these innocent folks. Right. right, like busting somebody's house early in the morning, they ain't supposed to shoot back. They don't know you. They don't know the police coming. You ain't give no police warning. Right. You didn't right. bust in. You didn't call 15 minutes early and like, hey, we're coming to your house for the police. You right. just kicking somebody's door. And being from where we from right. and being who we are, of course you have generational PTSD that's been riding with you. You don't right. know who coming in your house. You don't know who trying to hit you in the head. And so, yeah, of course, at four in the morning, if you come kicking in my door and I just happen to have that thing on me, you might get bust at. You might right. get shot. Right. Sorry. Right. I don't know to you, the police. I don't know. You got the wrong. And then you got the wrong house and then you kill somebody and then feel like, oh, he need to go to jail because he shot the police because we are. Then you ain't identify you. You kicked in the door at four in the morning. Right. Who's supposed to be awake? Right. Right. You know, when you calling people nigga at the hotel, when you arresting people for sitting in a hotel lobby, having a, you know, making a phone call to their parent, or when you, you want, you want to police me while I'm in the street parking or whatever, like all that stuff, really, I swear for the Lord, I'd be wanting to put hands on people or have somebody get their hands put on, them, mm-hmm. you know? And so as a, a reaction to that, I wrote Living While Black because there's a whole lot of stuff we can't do just because we us. Right. Like I can't even exa- I can't sit in my window and just chill without somebody coming and having something to say. I can't walk on the street by myself and not be bothering nobody, minding my entire own business. Can't do it. Oof. Oh, Sorry to be so heavy. No, no. that was. <laughs> we have these conversations daily. What was it? I feel like we were talking about it either last night or this morning. Um, so, so of course we relate. And in addition to emceeing, he's also a phenomenal producer. Living While Black, you actually, amongst other projects, you produced yourself. Yes. Thank y'all for having me. I mean, oh, thank you, know, you. You know what it is. You know, right. I love y'all. Right. Um, we love you too. We love you hold back. A special, you know, you know what's funny is that, oh, wow, I had to think back and remember how we met. That's the mm. first thing. Because <laughs> I was like, does Shell know Sahai first? Like, I really was going there. That's how <laughs> intertwined yeah. our family I remember is, you know. the first time. Yep. I it's so first time it's so funny. Yep. Yeah. That was crazy. I, I, I remember, you know, uh, meeting you at, uh, I think it was Velvet Lounge, mm-hmm. um, at the event that uh, Odyssey, Unknown, and uh, and Nico uh, had for right, their right, project. Right, right. Right. And then uh and then connecting again and meeting Sahat when we were in um right. si- South by Southwest. Right, right, right. And then right. Shell and Sahat met at uh Q and Five. Yeah, the Q and Five mega show. Yep. Later. Yeah. And man. then realizing that they both had the same birthday. Birthday. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's the tweak out. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And then at the Grammy party, at the Grammy party, realizing that not only they had the same birthday, but so the Asheru's wife. Right, right. You know? Absolutely. Yep. And then it became the Trinity. You know what I mean? It became the, the, the holy trinity of Capricornus. Right. I mean, it's five of y'all in my Sagittariusness, but I'm okay with that. Right. You you close enough. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you enough. know. Right. One of us got to be special. Right. <laughs> no doubt. Awesome. But no, nah, but thank you so much, man. Yeah, thank y'all. Right, thank, thank you, you bro. Peace. Thanks for listening to Artistry, where art meets industry. 
This podcast has been brought to you by Substantial Art and Music. For more information, please visit www.subartmusic.com. You can also follow us on social media at Subart and Music. We'll see you soon, but talk to you sooner. Peace.